If you're enjoying Kitchens so far, then I would be so grateful if you signed up as a Patreon patron for just £3 a month. Your support would be very appreciated. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash podcast. The first place that my memory takes me, I guess, would be my maternal grandmother's uh, kitchen. Uh, that's the one that stands out to me. And actually, both the grandparents. The kitchen was quite, is a separate entity to the rest of the house. Actually, that house was burnt down in 1975. So it was just the ruins that um, that remained throughout my entire childhood. But then there was this little hut of like wood and zinc. But it had, I remember all the, the things that, that you would expect, like shelves, little sections for her pots and pans. Everything just made sense for her sort of height. My cousins and myself, my mom, uncles, everyone who knew her, neighbors, we would sort of congregate there and there were like fruit trees there was like a there's a big plum tree that's sort of it was blown down slightly when i think in 1988 there's a, a big hurricane hurricane gilbert one of the most famous ones there it knocked this tree down but it still grew and and bore fruit there was just so many days of just playing and learning and conversing with my family. That's where everything was made. Breakfasts, lunches, and dinner every day. My grandmother, she cooked every day. My name is Javon Bennett. I'm 31, living in Oslo, Norway. I lived in London for 15 years. And prior to that, in Jamaica. I was introduced to Javon via Naomi Oppenheim, who ran this year's brilliant Caribbean Foodways Oral History Project at the British Library. I was really interested in the stories of people who had moved to the UK from Caribbean countries and what their memories of kitchens were. It was both of his grandparents' kitchens that had really stuck in Javon's mind. And then my paternal grandmother, it was a similar thing. That one was inside, but immediately towards the back so it was all the pipes all the washing everything was done outside but the cooking was done inside as well as having uh, a stove they'd also use um, coal coal fires things like roasting breadfruits it almost looks like a, a tire cylinder you would have coal on built on top you create a fire and then you put sit the breadfruit on top and you slowly roast and it blackens and then you peel the, the breadfruit off uh, the skin. Breakfast is quite big in Jamaica, I think more commonly. Particularly at Christmas, I always feel like the breakfast is the more important meal than the, the dinner. Um, so we have ackee and saltfish, uh, plantains, whatever meat you'd want, breadfruit. So they'd all be prepared both in and outside. And that's the one thing I, I think I realised was well, that was a constant in all the different kitchens in all the different places I've lived when I lived in Jamaica was the kitchens were very close and proximal to being outside. 
and I, I asked my mom about it and she 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 I asked her how she felt and she's like yes it was it was fresh there was a lot of aeration of ventilation it was lighter you know even as there are trees bearing fruit and for example you know the trees were like part of our pantry so you know we were able to like pick things and the day we pick them that's when we cook them so it was very accessible and there was like a fluidity to how we you you access these spaces of indoor and outdoor so a lot of preserving happened outside as well a lot of other components of food and food preparation took place outside from killing and preparing and an animal like all of that was you know happened outside i've you know watching and learning chicken you know from farm to to um what's the term farm to table that all happened and i watched it happen in the all the, the processes the the garden or the 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 just the yard essentially was part of the kitchen the trees were part of our pantry I think that's so beautiful and what an amazing way to cook and to live. The reason I've been interested in Caribbean kitchens for this project is this. As Javon has explained, the way him and his family ate in Jamaica was very complementary to the way that they lived, the way that kitchens were set up. It was warm enough to have that indoor-outdoor fluidity he talks about and kitchens were set up to cook things outdoor if that was required or better, like roasting breadfruit over the coals. But what happens when you move to a different country with very different kitchens? You go in the back door. It's a really small kitchen. It's tiny. It's like a tiny little box. Gas hob. So you have the stove. Worktop. Counter. Sink. A small fridge. Underneath the draining board was the gas fridge. If more than one person's in there, everyone starts to get a bit flustered. That's the general vibe. This is Kitchens, a podcast series by Lekker about the most important room in the home. I'm Lucy Dillard. They left out any element of human emotion and uh, emotional intelligence and what people needed from kitchens. This kitchen is not, it's not suitable for me. It doesn't enable me to cook. Kitchens are more clones of each other than living rooms or bedrooms are. Why is that? Episode 5. The Hearth of the Home. We moved in March of 2002. It was officially spring. And and I remember it being quite sunny, but I was not used to the cold. And it was still very cold. Actually, my mom got a fever because she looked, she was inside, looked out, saw that it was bright and sunny and went out dressed in just like, just a tiny t-shirt and got a fever and got really ill. Obviously moving anywhere new involves a lot of adjustments, particularly if it involves moving countries. But for Javon and his mother, there were lots of things related, particularly to the weather of their new home country, that were a shock to them. 
we realize that suddenly we're now living in a in a country that has very drastic seasonal changes that we need to adapt to and our style of cooking is in a way controlled by those seasons or the way we cook particularly in the winter we can't just have it open we have to suddenly ventilation is an important factor having air ducts and the horrible sound that when you turn it on that whirring that horrible drone Having only ever lived in northern European countries with cold winters, I've never lived in a kitchen without an extractor fan. So for me, they go hand in hand with kitchens. But they're a pain. Big, noisy, ungainly. And I can imagine a really annoying thing to have to adapt to using if you'd just been used to cooking outside or having the kitchen open enough to the outdoors for any smells to just blow away quickly. In fact, the whole setup of their new kitchen took some getting used to. It's like a tiny little box. So you had the stove, counter, the air duct above it. There was a, a small fridge beside it, cupboards uh, above going round. So it's almost like a little hatch. And it was quite just very a very simple very modest but it wasn't very clean i remember when we moved in and my mum wasn't happy and then she got to work on it because she's a clean she's a fanatic when it comes to cleanliness and also i think in jamaica we lived in a, in homes where the floors are mainly tiled so it um, allowed us to keep cool and suddenly we're going into a place where it's carpeted. So again, that feels a bit more claustrophobic. As well as adapting to the kitchen itself, finding the things they wanted to eat and were used to cooking was a challenge. For my mum, that was the main thing, that she had to suddenly source everything. So it took a long time for her to like find the ingredients that she was accustomed to to cook the food she knows and then we have to stock everything and there's you find yourself doing a lot of bulk buying and another thing that was really difficult for them to get used to was the stove because we're used to using gas in Jamaica I mean the way I think of it is it's fire it's instant heat and suddenly going from that to using an electric hob it was a lot slower your sense of sight which you relied upon quite readily before, you no longer have that. So now you have to, you know, you put your hand over the, the pan. Is it hot enough yet? Is it ready? The skill that goes into controlling a, a, an open flame is also re, uh, redundant. You're bound by the specific controls on the knob from like one to nine and working out what does that mean? And it takes a long time to work out what they really, you know, to gauge in your head, like a sense of that's medium high or, you know. You have no finesse anymore as you would have with a gas. So, so I think for her, it was a bit slower. 
This is one of the elements of kitchen design that I was most interested in exploring when I started working on this project. And it's something that has been relatively difficult to find sort of writing and and wider research on. For me, the single most positive influence on the food that's available in the UK today is immigration. The food that's available here now would be nothing without the food brought here by people from other countries. But when you consider the domestic kitchen in the majority of homes, it's been designed for a style of food and cooking that's a long way removed from a lot of the food that has been brought here by people from other places. The labour-saving kitchens of Lillian Gilbreth, the American domestic educator and engineer who I talked about in episode two, featured case studies focused on reducing the number of motions required to prepare very specific kinds of food, like meatloaf or strawberry shortcake. And there was a similar pattern in the UK as well. In the book The 1950s Kitchen, which has loads of amazing archive kitchen photos and I highly recommend it, Catherine Ferry writes about research carried out by Lever Brothers in the 1930s, where they determined the optimum kitchen size for expending the minimum effort when cooking, quote, the very British menu of soup, fish and chips and apple pie. But this is an extremely different style of cooking to many people who now still live with these styles of kitchens. The motions required, for example, to toast, then grind spices before making a stew or curry with them, or to cook several dishes one after another in a wok or steamer, are very different from this exceptionally beige oven-based menu. In the kitchen zine released alongside this series, Ishita Dasgupta interviewed her mother, who moved from West Bengal to England in the 1970s. Her mother, adjusting to the shock of a new life many thousands of miles away from home, also had to adapt to a very different way of cooking. Ashita writes, What took most time for her to get used to was the electric cooker. In India, she had first learnt to cook over a clay stove using charcoal. My mother would always add far too much water to her cooking, expecting it to be like gas, and her food would often end up soggy and flavourless. I don't think I've ever encountered a recipe that takes into account the fuel that you might be cooking over. Because this is absolutely true, a gas stove will evaporate water much faster than an electric one, and it will completely change the dish. And there's also just the matter of the power and the heat of the stove. Sean Warmington One, who talked about his unsociable shared kitchen at the beginning of episode three, told me that when his family moved to England from Hong Kong when he was little, his mum would use a portable gas camping stove to cook on because their actual hob just wasn't powerful to get the heat she needed for frying and making other Chinese dishes. And this is something Sean still does in shared kitchens with unsuitable hobs too. Javon did stress to me that adapting to the electric stove didn't actually change how his mum's cooking tasted. And he also wanted to make it clear that while there were things they missed about life in Jamaica and everything did take some getting used to, they were also really excited about their new life in England. And there were things in their East London kitchen that they'd never had before. We were excited because we, you know, we were moving to the UK and we knew that we are moving for a better life. So we, in a way, we were leaving, leaving Jamaica behind 
So we were kind of excited to get a few things. We got a microwave, which we'd never had before, and a kettle, which we've never had before, because it just it just felt, it, again, because it was so quick, easy to just boil the water on the gas stove and the pan. Also because in Jamaica, electricity is so, at that time anyway, it was scarce. Like, particularly on a Sunday evening, it would just go out. <laughs> and then, uh, and you knew, like, oh, okay, everyone got the candles out. And it was always a Sunday, so I think it was timed. Having a kettle seemed a bit frivolous. And and, and now it's, I mean, but also, the, and that's, you know, in the the 90s, the early 90s. So it's, it's all of these things were becoming, were new to us. probably describe myself as hob agnostic like a hob has to be functional and ideally fast but to a certain extent I've always accepted that I get what I'm given particularly when I was renting I've lived in flats with fiery gas hobs that burned things instantly until I got used to them and I've lived with electric hobs that took the duration of a shower to warm up to an appropriate heat for cooking porridge What I'm trying to say is, I've never given that much thought to what I'm cooking over, let alone how a particular kind of fuel or flame might be better for a particular food. I wonder if this is a product of how many times the typical cooking fuel has changed in this country, and how the food has been altered as a result. Ruth Goodman writes about this in her book The Domestic Revolution, about the pivotal role that coal played in Britain's history. Britain was the first Western country to switch over from wood to coal as the predominant fuel, and London was domestically dependent on coal by 1600. And by 1900, 300 years later, 95% of households in the entire country were coal burning. No other nation's cuisine developed quite along the same lines, since no other nation was to have the same relationship with coal. She identifies a really striking shift in English dishes pre-switched to coal and afterwards, calling it, quite hilariously in my opinion, the thick-slash-wet divide. When wood was the main fuel for cooking fires in the home, dishes like fermenti, a thick, starchy, 17th-century meal consisting of dehusked corn cooked twice, first in water and then in milk and broth, until it took on a sort of risotto-ish texture. It was then enriched with egg yolk and salt before serving. Wood fires were particularly suitable for these sorts of dishes as they were best cooked by way of an initial boil of high heat and then a period of lower heat to allow them to absorb the liquid. Wood fires burnt more quickly and subsequently cooled, allowing this to happen. But coal, which retains high heat for much longer, doesn't allow for this cooling period. To cook fermenti over a coal fire, you would have to pay close attention, and after the initial boil, you would have to periodically take the pan off the fire so that it didn't burn. So partly for this reason, with the rise in popularity of coal, 
English cooking moved towards broth-based, wetter dishes, which could withstand a longer, hotter cooking method without burning or catching. It's important to state here that we can't just generalise about British food, because different countries within Britain developed very different traditions when it comes to cooking. So, first thing to say is that Welsh cakes are just one of a number of different types of dishes and cakes that um, work really well on a bake stone on an open fire. My name is um, Cadwyn Graves. I'm a food historian based in West Wales. Talking to Cadwyn was educational for many reasons. But a big one was understanding how much more connected Welsh food history feels to its methods of cooking and the fuel that historically powered them. What's especially fascinating is that some of this isn't even particularly ancient history. You're talking about, um, well, two things um, really. You're talking about ranges and you're also talking about open, open fireplaces. And the open fireplace is this just amazing rich tradition that now pretty much has died but that is absolutely within living memory and the range tradition I guess is less unique but that continues in a, in a lot of um, rural communities. So the open fire thing is where all of these um, wonderful things that people from outside of Wales may have heard of things like Welsh cakes have come from and it's a tradition that goes right right back in terms of archaeologists finding evidence of um, this is going to sound terribly stereotypical, but even um, in roundhouses and some of the equipment used. So if we use the word bake stone or backstone, there's different ways of pronouncing it. The clue is in the word stone. And one of the Welsh terms for Welsh cake is pique ar y main or pique ar y man. Pique is related to the English word pikelet, um, some people may have heard of. And then mine is literally the word for a large stone. So it's, it's pikelets on the stone. Open fire cooking is absolutely within living memory in Wales. That's a fact that I found really hard to get my head around. So by choice, people from certain generations stuck to the old style of open fire cooking, even when modern stoves and fuels became available. I've only ever seen pictures of bake stones while researching this app, and I've never actually seen one in real life. So I asked Cardwin to describe what it looks like and how it fits into a Welsh kitchen. There's more than one type, but in terms of the Welsh bake stone, for centuries and centuries into um, living memory, you're talking about a flat cast iron implement that is a bit like a really big frying pan with no rim, and a sort of handle, but not like a long handle that you'd hold, but rather a handle that you might kind of clasp at the end. People would use iron tripods, all of which, suffice to say, have got their own names and regional names and everything. But that would then be put above this open fire and next to the fire. So this is not just an open fireplace like you might use to heat a living room or something, but the whole hearth space is configured in a certain way. So left and right, there are grates. And then beyond them, there are um, these stone sills. And on the stone sills, you have these drying racks. And you've got places for, well, in a lot of houses, you've got places for hands to dry up above and maybe slightly out from the fire. So, you know, the, the whole space is configured. But right at the centre 
is the bakestone. And I, I should also say that, you know, obviously you start the fire and um, using, you know, um, the right type of um, the right type of fuel for whatever you're going to be making that day. And you've got the bakestone above it and it, it heats up and it's got this steady, gentle, but sort of medium heat. Obviously, the skill there is in controlling the fire. I think there can be a tendency to think of food traditions and traditional food cultures as being quite disconnected from other aspects of life. But there's a really satisfying way that Welsh baked goods made sense in the context of historical houses and the way people lived in them. I'd love to just draw some of those links between Welsh cakes that a lot of people would have tasted and these um, old kitchen traditions that have just about survived into the early 21st century. To understand these fully, we have to zoom right out and come to the idea of how Welsh settlements were structured in comparison to, for example, England or France. I'll just use the English example, the same as with France and other places. You've got villages, traditionally, villages centred around a village green with lots of houses together and people would, uh, you know, basically sleep in the house in the village and then go out into the fields surrounding the village to work. Whereas in Wales, apart from a few areas in the southeast, the traditional settlement pattern, same true again, Scotland Island, is scattered cottages across the countryside. So in terms of social life, what that meant was um, not that pubs didn't exist, but um, you've got to also remember about Welsh revivals and kind of non-conformist teetotal things. So in England, um, again, I'm broad brushstroke here, but the pub being the centre point of the village, you finish your work as whatever you do and you go to the pub. Whereas in, in Wales, what happens is you live two fields away from somebody that direction, two fields away from somebody in the other direction. And, you know, there's a cluster of cottages and you gather in a cottage and where do you gather when well, you gather I mean it's a cottage it's small and you gather in that space where you've got the fire the bake stone is on it's got that gentle heat that's just perfect you've got a chest of oatmeal you've got your dairy um, you know you've got your um, buttermilk and when the people arrive you can literally put together you know the batter for something along the lines of Welsh cakes I mean the whole other range of things um but I, I won't bore you with all their names, but, but something on the lines of a Welsh cake and you just drop it on the bake stone and within a few minutes, there's a really Moorish, fatty, sugary snack that people can enjoy as they're sat there. And what do they do? So I'm just going to also draw this link. People might have heard about kind of the Welsh poetic tradition and things like the Eisteddfod. What do they do? Well, there is a strong tradition of, um, you know, of, of literally poetry and entertainment of that nature that happens in this kitchen space that is also a living space. OK, so culturally, the Welsh cake and its related siblings fits into Welsh traditional ways of life like this. But the threads are further entangled still. Many of the items that could be cooked on the bakestone like this contained oats. As Cardwin himself writes in a series about Welsh food culture on his website, it's hard to convey just how much in the way of oat-based foods was consumed in Wales up until the 20th century, particularly by people living in the western, windward side of the country. And here's why. Here's your unified theory of um, European food. East of Europe, you've got much colder winters, and the further west you go, winters get milder. And this is actually, incidentally, why leeks are associated with Wales, because they can overwinter in the west, in the garden, 
because it just it, you get frost and you get a bit of snow but it never stays around for long because the Atlantic comes in and it rains again so that means that hardy vegetables like leek can overwinter you try and do that in Poland and it ain't going to work and then the same applies when you come to grains and baking so in a different way oats do well hence obviously Scotland um, you know and that um, that whole um, well-known tradition and the same was true in Wales so oats do really well here Whereas um, oats are just not particular, there's not much point growing them if you go further east in on the continent when you get to wheat belt, France, and then east again and you get to rye territory. And oats don't have gluten in them. So this is where everything comes together because no gluten means that bread doesn't rise. And if you want to make useful things with oats, you've got to cook in a different way. So what can you make with oats? Well, yes, you can make porridge, but I think everybody... Agree. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of porridge. I think porridge can be delicious and it's, you know, it's good food and we know that health benefits. But I think everybody would agree that if you had kind of porridge, you know, morning, noon and evening, you know, you get incredibly sick of it. And so this is where, you know, human agency and, um, you know, peasants making decisions is a really important concept because... They didn't just make porridge. They found other ways to um, use oats, you know, have a varied diet with um, something as, in one sense, as unversatile as oats because wheat is, let's face it, wheat is, is just that bit sexier and that bit more useful. So if you, if you can only really grow oats, what are you going to do? One of the things is oat cakes. Oat cakes are tough. I don't know if anybody listening to this has ever tried making oat cakes at home. But find a recipe and, and give it a go and you will get frustrated because, you know, it's not flour, it's not wheat flour and it doesn't make that really satisfying dough that you're used to. So to actually make something really usable with oatmeal takes skill and practice. The availability of oats over wheat or rye in Wales helps to explain why enclosed ovens didn't see the rapid rise in popularity that there was in some countries. They still existed. There are records of amazing communal bread ovens. Uh, but when it came to domestic cooking, people were very accustomed to the open fire and range cooking that Carwin's been talking about for the sort of foods they like to make. And so we come back to the bake stone, because this style of heat and cooking lends itself very well to this sort of food. There are obviously plenty of professional um, bakers in Wales today who make really good Welsh cakes. And you can make them on a on a gas hob, you know, with a diff, you know, with griddles, basically modern griddles, but they just don't work as well because what you want is a really gentle, steady heat. I'm not a physicist, but you could measure this. Uh, you know, I've I've read enough around it that you you could definitely um, measure. Well, I've experimented as well. Uh, you could pick this up in terms of physics. And there's interesting um, stuff written down as well from um, years ago when gas hobs were coming in, people complaining, yeah, just people complaining about um, the kind of way of control. This is a generation of women, of course, who were used to the intricacies of different fuels. So you have peat, you have gorse, which is abundant um, in the western half of Wales. Obviously, you've got wood and coal as well. A turf is another one. And they... You know, they had their different fuels for different things. So you had a whole range of dishes. I don't know what to call them. They're baked goods, but they're not baked goods that you make in an enclosed oven like we think of an oven. They're all made on the bake stone. So the Welsh cake is one, but there's a whole range of others using other fruits like apples, things like pancakes. So pancakes, we're the best pancakes in the world made, Brittany. 
What's the word for that? Crepe in French. Crepe in French comes from crempos in um, Breton. And that is the same word as the Welsh word for pancake, crempog. I think it can't really be stressed enough how much skill was required to cook and bake in this way. Building and maintaining a constant heat on a fire is very far removed from switching on a hop, no matter what the fuel is. So the advantage of this open fire method is that you've basically got two main implements that you use and you can do everything you need with it. So implement one is a basically a cauldron and that is for your stews, and for your um, porridge-type dishes, so your liquid dishes. And then you've got the bake stone, and that's for all the dry, the baking. You've got two basic things that are very, very versatile, and both of them are above a fire. So this is where the fuel comes in. I mentioned gorse earlier, and the thing with gorse is it burns um, very, very quickly, but it doesn't, it doesn't give you a steady, um, you know, a steady heat. So it depends on what people wanted to bake, is my understanding. If you've got gorse on one end of the spectrum, then you've got peat and turf at the other end of the spectrum, and they're very, very slow, not very hot. And again, you might think, okay, well, probably people were only using them because they didn't have access to coal. That's actually a flattening of the historical record because, um, well, I say historical record, I, I really should emphasise this was still going on in well into living memory in many parts. And people, when they had, you know, when women had, uh, I know, I, I, you know, women, when women had the option of coal, plentiful coal, cheap coal from obviously the, uh, the mines of South Wales and wood and peat and gorse and turf, I gather that turf was basically left out, so turf was deficient, but people kept using the peat and they used it for overnight dishes. So this is the thing, it's safe. So it's this slow, gentle heat. It's literally a slow cooker, but it's not plugged into the electricity grid. And so you've got your, your cauldron dishes rather than your baked bakestone dishes. You make this peat fire, you know, you know what you're doing, which I don't, but you do it right. You put what you want in the cauldron and it will it will smolder and it will keep going. And then you get up in the morning. So people did porridge this way. And you get up in, your mor- in the morning, non-centrally heated houses, of course, and you've got a hot, nice bowl of porridge ready for you, which is wonderful. So, so that's, that's peat. Gorse, I gather, this is interesting, gorse was used outside. I don't yet know why, but I trust that there was a logic to this. When people had indoor kitchens, it was a very, very common thing up until, um, I gather this stopped in the 60s generally, but up until the 60s for people to do some of their cooking by choice in the open air in Wales. And gorse was used there. You get a, you know, you get a crackling fire going quickly. And then I think people moved over. You, know, you start the fire with gorse and you move over to another fuel. I'm guessing that will be coal commonly. But I don't know for that one. When people were making this switch from over the second half of the 20th century, for a variety of reasons, but basically the old way of cooking took a lot of time and people were losing that time because, um, you know, for for good reason, obviously, um, a lot of women were entering the workforce and, you know, the whole set of society was changing. But what was lost there was um, the fact that, you know, you just can't, these dishes and these recipes were adapted over 
literally centuries for a way of cooking that didn't kind of work anymore. The shift to types of cooking that are easier to fit into modern life does make sense. But what's sad about this is that there's a really particular loss that goes onside it. And maybe it's a little bit unexpected. The Welsh language associated with these very specific types of cooking. For me, and I think for maybe I could say for us, so my, my first language is Welsh. We speak Welsh at home. I grew up um, speaking Welsh. And the language for all of these things, actually, even in parts of Wales that have been English speaking for, in some cases, places like Gower Peninsula for centuries, they borrowed kitchen terms from Welsh. And that's not because there wasn't suitable vocabulary available in England uh, or in English, but actually because of the um, the kind of kitchen culture being very distinct. Like, so Gower is a really good example because they had loads of links over the sea, quicker to travel by sea, over to Devon and Somerset. And they spoke the same language, English, in Gower, as people did in, in Devon and Somerset, rather than their Welsh-speaking neighbours. But the kitchen vocabulary in Gower English comes from Welsh. And again, this is because their way of cooking was, you know, was this kind of Welsh way. I don't want to overemphasize, but there is something there. And so even in the Welsh language, as we've had this massive shift where some things have survived, you know, a lot of dishes are not going to die out ever, presumably, things like Welsh cakes, but a whole, a whole load of other things have fallen by the wayside within the last 50 years. And it's particularly the terminology around implements and preparation methods and sayings and all this sort of thing, yeah, that have died. There is something poignant in particularly um, for me as a, 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 I guess the way to convey it for people listening who, you know, who maybe speak a global language like English as their mother tongue, is to think, imagine what it'd be like if everybody who was over the age of 70 used a whole bunch of English terms in the kitchen and then everybody else used French terms and you'd kind of be like, ah, it's like there are all these really nice words and I don't know why we've stopped using them, but we have. I don't know if that gets the emotion behind it across uh, to an extent, but um, that is kind of what it feels like. So for me, it's not natural to use terms for things like spatula so for spatula we we you know every anybody my age in welsh is going to use the um, alone word from english we're going to say spatula but there are loads of baking terms that basically mean spatula yeah they don't refer to a plastic thing but it's the same that exist in welsh but that are just that have just been lost as that kitchen setup has shifted and there is something poignant in that and yeah, I, I'm not interested in a kind of campaign for linguistic purism, but I, I don't want to throw babies out with bath borders either. Like Carwin rejecting linguistic purism, I don't want you to think that I'm just pining for the good old days out of blind nostalgia. Coal is a dirty fuel, and there's a reason why over the past few decades there's been a decisive move away from it, just as there's a move away from installing gas hobs in new-build homes in this country. For the sake of the environment, we do have to stop relying on fossil fuels to heat our homes and, and to feed us. And for example, electric and induction hobs allow flexibility for their power to come from more sustainable sources. But coal is still used as a cooking fuel by people in many parts of the world. 
And while a global shift towards cleaner, more sustainable sources of energy and heat is crucial, I think it's also really important to handle this sensitively and to preserve the traditions somehow, or else risk the entire systems built around this way of cooking being lost forever. The way the whole kind of culture, you know, all these different threads just converge. I'm sure it would be true in so many other parts of the world, but um, it fascinates me to, as a Welsh person, to see all of these threads coming together as, you know, as I studied the kitchen. Lekka is written and produced by me, Lucy Dearlove. Thanks to my contributors on this episode, Javon Bennett and Cardwin Graves. Extra thanks to Naomi Oppenheim, who put me in touch with Javon via the British Library Caribbean Foodways Project. And also thanks to my friend and previous Lekka guest, Sean Stacey, who first told me about Cardwin's work. There's a Kitchens print zine. It features original essays and illustrations about kitchens released alongside this audio series. Buy a copy now at lekkerpodcast.com forward slash kitchens. Original music was composed for this series by Jeremy Wormsley, with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Research and production assistance from the brilliant Nadia Medi. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts because it really helps other people find us. And I wanted to say a huge thank you to my new Patreon patrons, Anna, Naomi, Sonia, Gloria, Sean, Harriet, Jane, Kirsten, Sean and Hannah. Thank you so much for pledging to support Lekka every month. I'm super grateful. 